Welcome to the Breathe Easy Critical Perspective Podcast. My name is Dominique Pepper, and in this podcast, we interview leaders and experts in critical care. And for today, we go to Tucson, Arizona to discuss tracheal intubation in adults with critical illness in the era of COVID-19. Yeah, my name is Jared Mosier. I am an associate professor of emergency medicine and medicine uh, at the University of Arizona. Great. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast with us, Jared. Today we'll be discussing um, your team's paper that was in the Blue Journal uh, entitled Tracheal Intubation in the Critically Ill, Where We Came From and Where We Should Go. So maybe we could start off by asking you, why did you and your team write this article? That's a great question. So we... Uh, I'm the course, the national course director for the difficult airway course for critical care, and the other authors, one is the, Calvin is the national course director for emergency medicine, Adam is the national course director for anesthesia, and so we do these courses around the country, and one of the things that we're noticing is that there is a wide variability in the airway experience that people have when they're practicing in the ICU that even persists today with people in fellowships. Everywhere from people get no airway training to a couple weeks of intubating in the OR to an extensive uh, training program, and then they get a job after a fellowship and thrust into the mix of, of doing the airways. And there are also a lot of hospitals that have hospitalists who had no airway training managing uh, patients' airways. And so we noticed that there was a need for an article like this, uh, especially in the face of all of the airway research that's come out in the last two to three years. Great. And uh, I think uniformity is definitely important. And uh, I, th- I thought this paper was particularly relevant uh, in this day and era of uh, COVID-19, where we're having to rethink about um, how we intubate critically ill COVID patients. So before we get to uh, the COVID-19 patients, maybe you could tell us uh, what challenges intensivists or hospitalists will experience when performing routine tracheal intubations in the critically ill patients. Yeah, it, it's a great question. I mean, the, these patients, uh, of all the procedures that we do in critically ill patients, I think I would be hard-pressed to find one that is higher risk than this one. Uh, these patients have limited physiologic reserve. They're critically ill, and we, they need mechanical ventilation, and we have to periodically pause their breathing, give them hemodynamically active drugs, to put them on a ventilator to then improve their hemodynamics and and their work of breathing and gas exchange. And so that comes at a cost. And if you look at the published literature, there is anywhere between a 25% uh, and 50% or higher complication rate with intubation in these patients. It's the highest risk procedure. These patients are the highest risk patients. And And it also doesn't matter who does the procedure. If you look in the paper, we comment about uh, one study that was published in 2018 where they had patients who were intubated in the operating room for an elective surgery and they just happened to be intubated within 30 days for critical illness by the same group of anesthesiologists and they found a much lower first-pass success rate, much higher complication rate. So these patients truly are different and with limited reserve. Uh, in terms of specific challenges, well, uh, this was most granularly looked at with the NAP4 uh, self-audit in the UK in 2010. And what they found was that uh, people had limited experience in managing these difficult airways. They had uh, a limited 
equipment available to them, and they weren't doing assessments for difficulty or recognizing the need to move on to rescue equipment, and they had limited help. And that's uniformly been shown since looking at that as well. There was a, a analysis recently published of the closed claim, the anesthesia closed claims analyses, and what they found was that in the most recent time period of looking at the database, there was an increase in lawsuits related to out of OR airway management. And what they found was that about half of patients had predictors of potential difficulty, but the plan wasn't changed based on the the potential difficulty that they were faced with. So how would we recognize difficult airway um, in a critically ill patient? So we advocate that there there are different sources of difficulty. Um, traditionally, difficulty was determined by difficulty with laryngoscopy. The Traditionally, the only devices that you had to do laryngoscopy were either straight or curved uh, direct laryngoscope blades, Macintosh or Miller, and all the challenge with laryngoscopy or all the challenge with intubation came with challenges of performing laryngoscopy because you needed to use one of these devices to compress the tongue and soft tissues of the upper airway so that you could visualize the airway for placing an endotracheal tube. So the bulk of the risk came from the procedural aspect of performing laryngoscopy. That is still the case, uh, but less so with the advent of video laryngoscopes. Now with video laryngoscopes, the, the device will get you a view because the camera is directly on the end of the blade. So the challenge, the procedural challenge comes from navigating that tube around that corner to get up to the airway. So there is still some procedural difficulty associated with uh, laryngoscopy and still, you know, maybe up to half of people still try to perform direct laryngoscopy. So there is those challenges. The second challenge that we advocate is assessing for physiologic difficulty because the bulk of the the risk in critically ill patients comes from physiologic difficulties, namely their risk of desaturation during laryngoscopy or hemodynamic collapse with laryngoscopy or shortly after laryngoscopy. And when you combine the two, that's particularly the recipe for death. And you mentioned some of the complications that can occur if you don't uh, uh, um, adequately recognize a difficult airway. So maybe you could just tell us uh, like some of the complications that we should be aware of uh, that you mentioned in Table 1. The biggest complication is desaturation. So if you are going to intubate a patient, you're most commonly in the ICU going to intubate, intubate them for hypoxemic respiratory failure. The patients who are intubated for airway protection, that kind of stuff, are usually done in the emergency department. So when they come to the ICU, they come to the ICU on BiPAP or high flow with pneumonia and hypoxemia, and they then degenerate to the point where they need to be intubated. That's the most common indication for intubation in the ICU. And so the biggest risk factor with them is desaturation during the procedure. And many of the other complications lead to desaturation. For example, aspiration is not really a problem until it leads to desaturation. Uh, gotcha. And so, 
<clears throat> so if you give somebody drugs to take away their spontaneous breathing and take away their airway, you have a clock there, and that clock is a race against an inevitable cardiac arrest from hypoxemia. And so pre-oxygenation becomes important, and there are things that limit that. And the most common reason for having to abort an attempt at laryngoscopy is because the patient has desaturated, and then you have to bag them up and try something differently. So the, the most common complication is desaturation. The next most common complication is cardiovascular collapse, and that's largely because of the drugs that we use uh, are, are many of them are hemodynamically compromising. All of them take away consciousness, which leads to a reduction in endogenous, endogenous catecholamines, and so on and so forth, so on and so forth. And then we transition them to positive pressure ventilation, which has its own hemodynamic uh, complications. Gotcha. So um, in order to make sure that I expertly intubate my critically ill patients, I've got to recognize the difficult airway, make sure I'm facile with the equipment, be aware of potential hypoxemia, and be on the lookout for potential cardiovascular collapse. So maybe you could walk us through, you have a really good um, uh, table too that gives uh, recommendations on how to manage these patients and mitigate any potential catastrophes that can occur with either hypoxemia or cardiovascular collapse. Yeah, there's three things I, I teach people that if we if we could do three things to improve the safety and reduce the risk with intubation in critically ill patients, it would be number one, pre-oxygenate better. Uh, number two would be prepare and assess for difficulty. And the third would be to recognize when it's time to rescue failure. Uh, those would be the three things that I would say need to be done to improve the safety of intubation. And so um, going to table two, like you recommended, so they really go along with all of those uh, those three things. So positioning, positioning has been hotly debated since the early days of intubation, and people have gone through all different sorts of permeations of intubation based on the risk of aspiration versus the risk of cardiovascular collapse. Because at the time, thiopental was the most commonly used uh, induction agent, which is a very potent venodilator, and patients would uh, drop their blood pressure substantially. Interestingly, aspiration historically has been the, the biggest concern with airway management because pulse oximeters weren't really invented for 20 years after they started having these debates about which position to put people in. And so aspiration is the was the one complication that they could immediately see. And so positioning was directed around preventing aspiration. Uh, We have since learned that having somebody in an upright position will improve your ability to pre-oxygenate them. And the, the bigger their body habitus is, ascites, pregnancy, that kind of stuff, the, the more effect you'll have on improving your ability to recruit an FRC uh, and denitrogenate that FRC to allow a, a prolonged uh, duration of apnea without desaturation. Now, the debate still rests in in what is your ability to successfully complete intubation on first attempt based on position. And I think the literature is unclear. Uh, We still advocate, regardless of if you're a supine person or a ramped person, the patient should be ramped or upright as much as possible for pre-oxygenation at a minimum. Uh, And then next, to pre-oxygenate patients, that that really requires three things. So the first thing is 
that you need to have a volume of gas available to draw upon <clears throat> during apnea. That volume of gas is your functional residual capacity, which in a normal patient is roughly 25 mLs per kilogram. The bigger you are or the more severe your ARDS is, that volume of gas goes down. Your FRC goes down. So in somebody with ARDS, that goes down uh, in proportion, direct proportion to the severity of your airspace disease as defined by your PF ratio. So if you have a PF ratio of uh, less than 100, your FRC goes from 25 per kilo down to around 5 per kilo. And so that volume of gas available to you is quite low. The next thing you need to do is denitrogenate that. And so you want to replace all ambient nitrogen with 100% oxygen. And it was originally thought that you could just pre-oxygenate somebody with a regular uh, non-rebreather at, uh, at 15 liters for either eight, eight vital capacity breaths or three minutes of tidal volume breathing. That comes from old data in the operating room where they were trying to pre-oxygenate people to avoid having to mask ventilate prior to induction because they wanted to prevent aspiration and passive regurgitation. In our patients, you know, we, we don't have a tight-fitting face mask, and so when they breathe, they just entrain room air. And you can measure the ability to uh, uh, your ability to denitrinate somebody by measuring the, the fraction of exhaled O2 or the entitled O2. And what we have found is that with one of our regular non-rebreathers that we all use in the ICU, your entitled O2 only gets to about 50%, uh, which means that of that reduced volume of gas in your FRC, you're only able to denitrogenate about half of that, which further reduces your, your safe apnea time. If you use flush rate where you turn the oxygen all the way as high as it'll go, that gets you about... 50 to 80 liters per minute, depending on your hospital's uh, gas piping. And that gets pretty close to what you would get with a tight-fitting face mask. Um, and then things like high-flow nasal oxygen and BiPAP obviously uh, do a really good job at denitrogenation. So in most patients, if you just do those things, improve your FRC and, and uh, fully denitrogenate that FRC, you can safely proceed with making that patient apneic and, and intubating them. Okay. Uh, so in the ARDS patients, there's a third variable there, and there's an equation that you can go through. Uh, I, I wrote a paper for the British Journal of Anesthesia uh, that was published in December that goes through this equation and whatnot. Uh, but there's an equation that you can, you can estimate your safe apnea time based on those variables. But in the ARDS patients, the third variable that you have to take into consideration is your shunt fraction. So if, you're, if you have bad ARDS and you have a reduced FRC, it's very easy to denitrogenate that, that reduced FRC, but it might not be available to you because your shunt fraction is 50% or more. And so uh, in those patients, there may be no duration of safe apnea available to you. So what I do is if it is a patient, and it's pretty much based on uh, figure two in the, in the uh, paper, what I do is if, a, if the rate-limiting step for pre-oxygenation is the ability to denitrogenate the patient. So this is a patient who's getting intubated for airway protection, for example. Um, I will pre-oxygenate them with a non-rebreather at flush flow oxygen and I will have them in the upright position. And then I'll proceed with rapid sequence intubation of those patients. 
if the patient is, is if the rate limiting step for preoxygenation in that patient is because of airspace disease, I will then progress to either preoxygenation with BiPAP or preoxygenation with high flow. Uh, and I don't really have much of a preference between the two. Most of the time, the patient is on one or the other, and I'll just turn the FiO2 up to 100%. If their work of breathing is really high and they're sucking in a bunch of entrained room air, I'll, I might switch them to BiPAP and see if that improves it. Uh, but I will try to recruit some some airspace disease. And then I usually check an ABG and see what their their PAO2 is after that preoxygenation process. And if their PAO2 has not increased substantially, then I know their shunt fraction is bad enough that even though their SAT may be 96, 98%, if their PO2 is 80 or 90, then it is very likely that the that gas volume that I have worked so hard to have will not be available to me once I make them apneic. And those are the patients that desaturate immediately when you induce them. And so then I will intubate those patients awake. That's a really good overview. Thanks. Um, so you've talked about uh, uh, positioning and pre-oxygenating. Um, so maybe you could talk to us about uh, uh, rescue oxygenation and hemodynamics. Yeah. So one of the the first maneuver when you fail, well, I guess let me let me back up and talk about RSI. RSI is less controversial now than it was even three years ago. So three years ago, I would go around the country at every one of these courses, and I would ask how many of you are allowed to use paralytics in your ICU, and and only about ten percent of people would raise their hands. They weren't allowed to use them, and now almost everybody uses paralytics in their ICU. Uh, RSI has repeatedly been shown to improve not only your intubating conditions, but your your ability to mask ventilate or at a minimum not make your ability to mask ventilate worse uh, and improve your first pass success, reduce procedural complications. So everyone largely agrees that if you're going to make someone apneic, you should use RSI. It's my opinion that it is the sedative that increases your risk. Taking away someone's breathing increases your risk. Giving the paralytic is what makes taking away that their breathing safer because it improves your ability to intubate. So the worst possible scenario is that somebody gives an induction dose of a sedative, either Versed or Propofol or Etomidate, and doesn't give the paralytic because then the patient can't breathe on their own and isn't optimized for laryngoscopy. So so let's say you do that, uh, you either do full RSI or you just give your sedative dose and the patient desaturates and you're having trouble getting the tube in and now you have to rescue that oxygenation. The first maneuver should be mask ventilation. <clears throat> and you know, we're all taught in ACLS to do this CE hand grip and that is a that is a very fatigable grip. You will lose you will lose your seal within minutes uh because it's so fatigable. So we recommend the two-hand, two-person technique where one person is just bagging, another person is holding the mask uh, with two hands, CNR grip, and creating the seal. One of the common mistakes I see people make is that they feel that the rate-limiting step in the ability to mask ventilate is a seal, and so people push harder and harder on the face, which just occludes the airway more. So the person who's responsible for creating the mask seal, really they're going to use the thenar grip, and they're going to use their fingers to pull the jaw 
into the mask to really create that open airway. And if you use waveform capnography, you'll be able to tell if you have alveolar ventilation or not based on the, the waveform. And then you should use a PEEP valve in that instance uh, or in all cases of mask ventilation so that you can get some recruitment and reoxygenate that patient. In, in patients that you can't mask ventilate effectively that way, then a second-generation supraglottic airway is indicated in that, in that case to try to reestablish ventilation and as a bridge in the pathway to a surgical airway. And in, if you truly can't intubate, you can't restore oxygenation, you have to do a surgical airway in emergency cricothyrotomy uh, in that case. And it is kind of hotly debated in the anesthesia literature about whether you should do a, a uh, Seldinger technique or an open technique. And every study that's looked at this has really shown that the, the Seldinger techniques fail frequently and the open technique is rapid and highly successful. Um, but a supraglottic airway device can avoid that need in about 50-60% of patients. Got you. I think that's a really good uh, uh, advice and uh, uh, techniques. So in terms of hemodynamics, uh, any advice in terms of prepping your patient? You mentioned the fact that we're delivering a lot of PEEP to these patients, a lot of positive pressure. Um, any advice, uh, especially with these critically ill patients, maybe volume depleted? Uh, or maybe yeah. even uh, we've got another group of patients who have pulmonary hypertension. We've seen a lot of obese patients. Um, any words of advice on them? Yeah, it is really unclear what the right thing to do in these patients uh, is. And so uh, the way I try to approach it is if a, one of the things that can predict decompensation is a shock index. If their shock index is is greater than 0.6 to 0.8, depending on which study you look at, they're at high risk of, of um, decompensating after intubation. Now, the patient that is already hypotensive before you uh, go to intubate them, you should obviously resuscitate them prior to intubation as much as, as, much as possible, fluid resuscitation, early vasopressors, inline uh, norepinephrine. I don't, in those patients, I really don't like using push-dose vasopressors. I think phenylephrine increases your, your systemic vascular resistance and will increase your blood pressure. But if you have myocardial suppression from your underlying disease, you'll, you, you in theory would make your blood pressure better, but your shock ultimately worse. Uh, so I like to have norepinephrine going in those patients that you know are already hypotensive and in shock. Uh, but the, the real patient that we may be able to prevent decompensation is the patient who has, uh, that doesn't really tickle your, your spidey sense. So their heart rate's 100 and their systolic blood pressure's 100. And you might not really be worried about that patient because they don't appear that sick. But that's the patient who gets really sick with induction or is high risk of getting sick with induction. So uh, I tend to do a, a quick assessment of their hemodynamics and see, are they volume depleted or are they vasoplegic and need a presser? And if they're, if they're volume depleted, I'll give them a bolus and, and I might have a push-dose vasopressor around. Or if they're septic and I think there's a high likelihood that they'll end up on pressors, I'll just start the norepinephrine first. Um, otherwise, I'll have a fennel stick with me if I think their hypotension is likely to be secondary to venodilation from propofol or wh uh, whatever induction I'm using. But then there's the patients that you're talking about who have pulmonary hypertension, and if they have decompensated uh, pulmonary hypertension or right ventricular failure, 
those patients are a real challenge to intubate um, because any hypercapnia or hypoxemia by itself can increase their pulmonary vascular resistance and increase their uh, uh, risk of death. But then when you try to rescue oxygenate that person uh, by mask ventilating them with positive pressure afterwards, that also increases their risk of, of further decompensation and death. So many of those patients, if they are if they are cardiogenic shock from right ventricular failure, I tend to intubate those patients awake. Gotcha, gotcha. So um, before we move to the COVID-19 patients and the management of them, um, you mentioned the importance of human factors and having a really well-trained team. And I think that's really essential because a lot of times uh, the reason that we fail in the intubations is because we just aren't prepared. We're not doing it uh, in a teamwork fashion. So maybe you could just comment on that and then we can move on to uh, the COVID-19 patients. Yeah, I, I, we think that it is very important that you intubate with a team, not an audience. And so if you go in and do your assessment, and this patient's critically ill, let's say they have ARDS, and you do your assessment, and you've come up with your plan, and you have your rescue plan, uh, and let's say the, the rescue plan is in the difficult airway cart that's down the, down the hall, and you run into difficulty, and no one else in the room knows your plan, it will become chaos. You might as well not have a team in there uh, if you're just going to use them as an audience. So we advocate coming up with your plan, vocalizing your plan and your backup plan and your rescue plan to everyone in the room so that everyone knows what, what is going on and run through sort of a, either a formal or mental checklist that you have everything. You've got your suction, your bag valve mask, your peep valve, your oral airway. Uh, your fluids hanging, you've got your device, your backup device, all that stuff, have your airway cart there and assign roles to people that are, they will execute in the event that you run into failure. So if you have uh, your, if you have your helper in the room, whoever that may be, and you say that the most likely reason that I might fail my plan A is because of X, and if that happens, my plan B is going to be Y. Well, your helper knows that you may need Y, and they they have that available to you in the event that you need it. Uh, and we think that that really avoids the ultimate chaos that comes from a breakdown in communication when somebody runs into trouble. Because everyone sees this patient there desaturating, getting bradycardic, about ready to arrest, and the person at the head of the bed struggling. And when you're at the head of the bed, your sense of your perception of time is completely altered and and the more you struggle, the more likely you are to persist in that struggling instead of aborting. So you really need a team approach. Well, Jared, I think you've done a really outstanding job in laying this table for us on how to intubate critically ill patients. We're now going to layer it with the COVID-19 patients, um, given the uh, pandemic that's uh, um, out there in the United States right now. So maybe you could give us your insights um, and what you're learning from um, your co-intensivist in terms of how should we manage these patients uh, in terms of airway management, in terms of pre-oxygenation, in terms of positioning. Uh, what insights do we have? Yeah, that, that's a great question, and it, it's keeping me up at night, actually. So I, I really got interested in all this physiologically difficult airway stuff and really started studying it and tried to research on it and write about it after the H1N1 epidemic in 2009 when I was an, an emergency medicine resident at the time, and, and I swear half the patients that we intubated would die on induction, and I thought there must be a better way. And so we start developing these 
advanced methods of pre-oxygenation, who do we intubate awake, how do we assess that, and then COVID-19 happens, and and we're taking all of that off the table because we're afraid of the aerosolization with these advanced methods of pre-oxygenation. Now, until we can figure out what is the aerosolization risk of these advanced methods of pre-oxygenation like BiPAP and high flow, the the current recommendations are uh, to use a regular non-rebreather at 15 liters of flow instead of flush rate. And the thought is that at 15 liters or less, you're just filling the bag. After 15 liters, there may be an aerosolization risk. Now, all of this is speculative. None of, none of us really know if that what that risk is or if that is a risk, but we all think it is. And that's all based off of uh, the first SARS epidemic where so many healthcare workers were exposed uh, and they had a lot of patients on BiPAP. The BiPAP failure rate was high and healthcare workers got exposed. And so the, the logical conjecture there is that there's aerosols produced with BiPAP and maybe those patients were getting, the healthcare workers were exposed from that. We don't really know that. So right now we're, we're saying, uh, pre-oxygenate with a regular non-rebreather at 15 liters until we have more information. And if the patients remain hypoxemic despite that, then you need, you need a closed ventilator circuit. So if you put them just on regular BiPAP, you know, that, that exhausts into the room. So if you take a bag valve mask and put it on a ventilator circuit, then you have a closed circuit with a filter on the exhalation limb. And then if you have one person hold that mask on there, you can pre-oxygenate them using the equivalent of BiPAP, uh, get them to the point where you're satisfied with the pre-oxygenation, induce them, and then after you've induced them, suspend the ventilator so that when you take that mask off, it doesn't try to achieve that pressure that you've dialed in and blow aerosols all over all over the room. And then you can proceed with laryngoscopy. That's until we have more information on what does high flow do in these patients, that kind of stuff. Yeah, and then in terms of um, uh, PPE, what are you doing uh, when you're intubating um, and just post-intubation? Definitely N95 and face shield. Uh, when these when those run out, uh, and we've run out of pappers and cappers and those kinds of things, then then people are using drapes and and whatnot to try to reduce the aerosols produced from the patient with laryngoscopy. And so so of the various things I've seen out there, I like the drape better uh, than the box because the box assumes that that you're going to be successful on your first attempt and not need some kind of rescue device. And it would be very cumbersome if you did need a rescue device. And and with those big armholes, the aerosols are likely to just come out those armholes. So of those non-PPE available uh, patient protections, I like the drape better. Got you. And then there's some work from China suggesting uh, uh, intubate early rather than later, especially given the fact yeah. that you need to put your PPE on. Um, and then um, have you changed any of your drugs or any of your agents, uh, or are you using pretty much the same? Yeah, good question. So in, gar in terms of intubating earlier, uh, I know there is a lot of headache about intubating earlier in these patients because we're not using high flow and BiPAP and those things. So, so what I am telling my, my team locally is that if you had a patient who's on, uh, six liters of oxygen by regular nasal cannula and they're tachypnic and they're trying to maintain a SAT of 90 to 92% or more, if they're requiring that much support to do that, that is a patient that you would escalate to a non-invasive therapy. And, because we're not advocating for non-invasive therapies at this time, uh, 
any further delay in intubating those patients, like uh, escalating to a non-rebreather, increases their risk of a rapid desaturation on induction. And so, so what we're advocating, at least locally, is that you should intubate those patients earlier uh, based on the information that we have and the resources that we have at this time. Now, that's obviously fluid as things change. Yeah, and a lot of the stuff that we're talking about may change. So the other question I have is, um, are you all, uh, it's very controversial right now, this use of using one ventilator for two patients, and some people are saying <laughs> you know, that's a terrible idea, and other people are saying, you know what, you got to do what you got to do. Um, what are your thoughts? <laughs> uh, this is a real-life train trolley dilemma in what to do about these patients. Uh, when you run out of ventilators and you have more patients that you need, the Department of uh, Health and Human Services came out and said that it's illegal to to ration care in these patients. There's a multi-society guideline saying don't cohort patients on a ventilator. But here's my thought. Um, can it be done? Yes. It technically can be done. But uh, if you if you want to cohort a bunch of patients on a single ventilator and they were intubated for airway protection and they don't have airspace disease and their lung compliance is fine, then that's one thing. If a bunch of people shot in Las Vegas, that's one thing. If uh, if you're intubating patients with ARDS, then I get the sentiment of trying to do the most good for most people. And we've all decided amongst our group that I'll probably be the first one to try it because I, I uh, that's just my personality. Um, but the probability is that that's the way to do the most harm for the most people because it will result in an endless reshuffling of patients as their lung disease and their lung progression changes because they'll have to be matched based on lung compliance, recruitability, size. All of that will have, will change from a moment-to-moment -moment, uh, basis in these patients with ARDS, and so my my philosophical opinion is that it's the it's an efficient way to lose the most patients at the most time at, at, with one ventilator. Um, so some people have said, you know, um, the risk of aerosolization um, due to high flow or BiPAP. Um, is high, but what happens if we just cohort all those patients? If you've got enough patients where, and you don't have enough ventilators, maybe uh, create a, an area in your hospital where you'd have those patients on high flow or on BiPAP. What are your thoughts on that? I think it's, well, it's tough because we we want to save all these patients, right? But if you suggested something to a firefighter or a police officer that would you do something that would potentially that would potentially increase the environmental risk of your team? They would most likely say no. They have to secure the scene first, and so that's essentially the dilemma that we're faced with. There is a possibility that we don't know the answer to yet that putting people on high flow or BiPAP increases the aerosol risk to the environment, um, and people are running out of PPE. So I don't know the answer to that. I think in theory. You could potentially get away with that if you have the appropriate PPE. <clears throat> However, if we're talking about aerosols, not droplets, those aerosols are going to linger around for a while and increase the risk of exposure to any healthcare worker that goes in that room. Tough decisions. Yeah. I mean, we, yeah. we really are faced with a real-life train trolley dilemma with no good answer. Yeah. So in terms of uh, questions that you think need to be 
uh, answered in because a whole bunch of people are doing research now um, in airway management and uh, ventilation management of these patients. What would you say maybe two or three top topics that people need to really nail down in order to at the end of this COVID-19 uh, pandemic? Uh, specifically related to COVID-19? Yeah. What is the aerosol risk with what is the true aerosol production risk with high flow and BiPAP? I think that is num the number one thing that needs to be answered. Um, <clears throat> to me, if we could if we could bring those back into the fold safely, not only for patient management but for pre-oxygenation, I think that would really reduce the death rate in these patients. It would reduce the requirement of having to cohort on ventilators. I think it could be a game changer for thousands of people. That is the number one thing. Uh, and then number two is, you know, what, what's going on with this myocarditis and cardiogenic shock that, that people are seeing? What is the best way to treat that? Gotcha. To me, those are no, well, number one and two related to airway management. Got you. Well, Jared, I really appreciate uh, you allowing me to put you on the spot and ask you these uh, questions about COVID-19, especially since there's very little data out there. Um, as we draw to the end of this podcast, I just want to give you the opportunity to um, leave our audience with maybe a few uh, key messages or pearls, or maybe even just uh, tell us about stuff that we haven't covered in this podcast that you think the audience should know. Uh, well, first, I, I want to thank you for the opportunity to come on the podcast and talk about airways and talk about the stuff that keeps me up at night. Um, in terms of parting uh, parting thoughts, I would say, as intensivists, we're supposed to be the experts in life support. And in order to be that person, I think we have to be experts in putting patients on life support. And the three things that we can do to improve our ability to do that safely is, like I said earlier, pre-oxygenate better and more thoughtfully, do an assessment for difficulty, both anatomic and physiologic, and prepare based on that difficulty with your team, your stuff, your space, and then recognize when uh, our primary plan has failed, and we need to rescue that with our second and tertiary plans. I think those things, uh, if we just focus on those things, we will dramatically improve the safety of this procedure. Gotcha. An absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast. Uh, for audience, um, Jared and his team's article came out in the Blue Journal. It was initially published in January of 2020, um, and then the uh, paper version came out in uh, April 2020, entitled Tracheal Intubation in the Critical Care in the Critically Ill. Thank you very much, Jared. An absolute pleasure chatting with you. Thank you. You too. A big thank you to Dr. Mosier, and a big thank you to all of you for listening to the Breathe Easy Critical Perspective podcast. I'm Dominique Pepper for the American Thoracic Society.